Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Dyer and welcome to Colorado Inside Out on this Friday, June the 9th. This is an exciting week for two Colorado cities headed into the future with new leadership. Yemi Mobilati was sworn in on Tuesday as the 42nd mayor of Colorado Springs and also Tuesday, Denver voters decided to elect Mike Johnson as the city's 46th mayor. But those aren't the only big stories this week, so let's get right to introducing you to the panel this week. Patty Calhoun, founder and editor of Westward, along with Eric Sonderman, columnist for the Denver, uh, Denver and Colorado Springs Gazette and Colorado Politics. We have Jesse Paul, reporter and editor with the Colorado Sun, and also Summer Nettles, chief inspiration officer, Greater Purpose Media. Thank you all. Let's start by talking about the new leadership in Denver. On Monday, July the 17th, that is the day Mike Johnson is officially sworn in after winning Tuesday's runoff election over Kelly Ruff and Patty. In his commentary published in your paper, Westward, he promised genuine community engagement. I think that's what people want. It was really interesting that that's what he focused on when we, we published pieces by both Kelly and Mike about why they should be mayor. And he focused on the fact that communities weren't listened to. And he had visited all 78 official Denver neighborhoods during his campaign, and he promised he would do the same thing for his first 78 days in office, which I think is very good. We've heard a lot of complaints in the last four years of Michael Hancock that he wasn't listening if people even saw him and that he wasn't around that much. And now we see that Mike Johnson is gonna at least go out and do that. He's made some significant promises for those first 78 days, 100 days, but at least he's coming out moving fast. We're of course gonna see a lot more in the six weeks, five or six weeks before he's sworn in. I mean, he'll have to start with his kitchen cabinet. He'll have to decide what directions he wants to go, but it's an exciting time for Denver after 12 years with the same mayor and people are ready for new directions and change. We are excited for something new. Um, and Eric, I remember last week you were talking about, will we know this time next week? But it came in pretty easily on Tuesday night. Yeah, actually, I think we knew, Patty and I were talking before we taped, uh, I think we knew with the seven o'clock uh, first batch of votes, because once Mike Johnston and that count was up by, I believe it was like four points or something like that, you knew that number was only going to grow with each successive uh, reporting. Uh, if Kelly was going to be, if Kelly Bruff was going to be in this race, she needed to have a good turnout and a good performance early on. And ultimately, this was a decisive win for Mike Johnston. It was more than 10 points, I believe, at the end of the day. I don't think the fact that Mike Johnston got elected was much of a surprise in the closing weeks. I think the size of the margin might have been a bit of a surprise. But his real challenge is going to be to do that transition, not just in the sense of naming appointees, but a mindset tradition, tr transition from being a candidate to being a much more sober chief executive. Mike has been a candidate for so long for a number of offices. He now needs to become that chief executive dealing with a city that is struggling. That's an interesting thought. You're right. Jesse, your thoughts on this week? It was a busy one for you. You were at the Bruff campaign on Tuesday night? Yeah, it, it was uh, an interesting experience being over there. I think we kind of knew from the beginning when you even arrived talking to uh, Ms. Bruff just, just before the results were coming in. You could tell that, that I think she was kind of preparing for what the outcome was eventually going to be. Um, very muted mood at the, at the event the entire time. I, I think your point is, is a great one, uh, Eric. I mean, it, it, Mike Johnson hasn't been in politics or in an elected office for 
almost a decade now, I think, since he was in the state Senate. So it's been quite a while. Obviously, he's, he's been running campaigns, so he's been around all these folks. I'm really fascinated to see who ends up in his cabinet, if there's any holdovers from Mayor Hancock's in, uh, administration, uh, as well as whether any of his endorsers end up in his administration will be something fascinating to watch. Um, but, but I think, you know, I agree. This is, this is a, a total change, a, a sea change in the city of Denver. We talked to tons of voters on election day who weren't really happy with either candidate, which I thought was kind of fascinating. But a lot of the folks we talked to said that they were leaning toward Mike Johnson just because they didn't feel with, comfortable with Kelly Bruft, given her uh, experience in the city. They wanted a new fresh face, even though Mike Johnson really isn't a fresh face. But Kelly Bruff has been around in Denver politics for a long time. So I think from that perspective, a lot of voters decided to go with, with someone who had a little bit more of that blank slate. Mm -hmm. I think that um, it's it's just an interesting dynamic to watch someone who had reported to Hickenlooper um, face off against someone who heads like Gary Community Ventures, right? Like, so someone who advanced Proposition 123 and dedicated millions of dollars to a hundred to affordable housing, um, and I, th I think that that's a rubric to stand on despite the dark money, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, I think if, if Exxon were giving you money instead of LinkedIn, voters might be having a little bit more of a difficult time navigating that. Um, I also think that age was a factor. You know, um, we talk a lot about gender and race, but 48 to 59, that 10-year gap really does change the way that you speak and connect with people. And I think that, unfortunately, Kelly couldn't really bridge that gap. She she holds herself a bit apart, even in her um, effort to relate and tell her history. It's still not like it doesn't grab you the same way that Johnston could in person. So I, I really wasn't surprised. And what about the city council? No one brought that up. Mm. Well, that's where I think money actually made more of a difference than in the mayor's race in the in the mayor's race runoff, because you saw some of those races. Candy C. Debaca maybe could have pulled it out, but there was such a concerted effort to, against her with money. And I think it definitely made a difference in some of the other races. So what, we're going to have two progressives, official progressives as opposed to one. It's going to be an interesting council to work with, but six new council members. Well, I would also say that like, and I really love that Robin Kanich has, has kind of addressed this, is the pragmatism and progressivism like angle. So we really have, I think, celebritized our progressive candidates in effort to like create um, like a new squad, like a Denver squad. But Denver doesn't really want a squad. Denver wants homelessness to end. You know what I mean? Like Denver wants um, there to be aff affordable housing. Like Denver wants DPS to stop arguing. Like Denver doesn't need you to be like the cape, right? We we need you to be uh, an Avenger, like be part of the group that's going to get the stuff done. And I, I honestly would caution folks to think about the the progressives that we've put on city council. I don't think that they're as progressive as they are pragmatic, and they've served in roles that have allowed them to see the underbelly of um of like need, and and see where that need hasn't been served. Uh, yeah, and I've got to go. I would hope all of the city council members are pr pragmatic, no matter what their background is. We have a city to run. And I also want to argue a little bit. I thought Kelly Brough was very personable in her campaigning, in her ads, when I saw her out at, in person at debates. I mean, she was definitely using her public story. I think it wasn't that it was so much she was a political animal as she was still identified with the powers that be in Denver, from Hickenlooper through the Chamber of Commerce, and that really hurt. I That's agree fair. with That's Patty fair. on that point. I think it was ultimately, yeah. it was a race about money. 
Uh, and uh, Johnston had no end of money. Uh, and secondly, in a city that had sort of eliminated in the first round the more out there progressive candidates, and it was a choice between two very establishment centrist types, they picked the one who was three degrees more progressive of center as opposed to three degrees the other direction. And that was the right place for Johnston to position himself. He did it effectively real quickly, and I agree with some, some of Summer on the city council races. Uh, whatever the total complexion of this new council, the big news of the night was Candy Cedabach's overwhelming defeat. And if you get to beat, to Patty's point, by five points or six points, you can talk about money. When you don't even see 40%, when you get beat better than 60-40, it is not about money. It's something deeper. Candy turned herself into a celebrity. As I put it, she was always the one out there waving a golf club in a lightning storm. And ultimately, lightning did bite her this time. Voters wanted something more low-key and down-to-earth. And I think as someone who looks at statewide politics, it'll be interesting to see what tea leaves are read by progressives, given what the results were in the mayoral race and in the uh, city council race. I mean, a lot of very progressive candidates who I think we all thought would, would do a lot better in these races did not. And looking at a legislature that's been more dominated by progressive voices, I wonder what that looks like for the next election cycle and uh, future election cycles. I think, it, I think it could really shift the trajectory of all this stuff. Speaking of future elections, up next, Aurora. Colorado has their election for mayor coming up in November, so we'll be talking about that race before too long. This week, after 18 months, Boulder Fire investigators shared their findings into the state's most destructive fire, the Marshall Fire, that burned 1,000 homes more than, and also businesses as well, in December of 2021. Eric, they're actually saying there were two fires that caused all that destruction. Indeed they did. Uh, at a recent press conference, I think we need to change our terminology. It's no longer the Marshall Fire, it is the Marshall Fires. That there were two causes and it was really two fires that merged into this incredible super fire, super storm uh, situation that just decimated Louisville and Superior and uh, plenty other parts of, of Boulder County up to our north. Uh, Excel, I believe, uh, Jesse commented on this earlier uh, off air, you know, their stock, when the first report came out at the press conference, their stock tanked. Then a few minutes later, when it was announced that they were not going to pursue criminal charges and they didn't, the district attorney didn't find criminal culpability, their stock went back up. Uh, but it is not necessarily a terribly good day for Excel, mostly you know, whatever the cause of this is, that's all water somewhat under the bridge. That's a, probably a very bad metaphor. And, um, you know, these are lives, homes that are destroyed and lives that are just were incredibly disrupted. An emotional day. And I wonder, too, for, for the people who lost so much to hear there are no criminal charges being filed. The evidence does not show any criminal wrongdoing. Yeah, and I'm sure there are folks who are quite disappointed by that, but at the end of the day, you know, the explanation from the district attorney and from, from the investigators, I think, was a sound one, right? I mean, one of the fires, uh, one of the two fires was, was a reignition of a fire that had been six days old, had been buried. You know, the six-day-old fire happened in different weather conditions. They had, had plenty of water on scene, 100-mile-per-hour winds. Who could have expected that? You know, reignited this thing, blew off uh, all all the efforts to kind of smother the fire. And while there aren't criminal charges for Excel, I, 
there will probably be some civil ones and, and some civil cases that are brought. There's already a lawsuit that was filed against Excel before the investigation had even been complete. So I think while that stock price uh, came back up after going down, there, there will be consequences for them. And I already saw state lawmakers saying, Excel, you cannot pass these uh, costs along to consumers. Uh, I think people will be watching very closely how this utility uh, responds to the situation. Yeah, Excel's been in the news a lot already this year. Yeah, I think it's inevitable. And I think that as candidates look for issues to galvanize their campaign, Excel is going to excel at being that nugget. You know, they're gonna they're they're gonna be um, the the thing that a lot of um, a lot of potential candidates say when I get elected, I'm not going to let this energy company hold us hostage anymore while they fail at their job. It was a fascinating press conference how they listed things. First of all, that we all learned about the 12 tribes who knew that there was a cult group up there and that they flat out said they'd done the fire, it was all fine, it had re-sparked, but the fire department had given them the okay. So I think they will be all right because they the seal of approval from the fire department. Excel, they've been hit up by suits, they are going to be suffering for a while, but that means we are going to continue to suffer. Even if they can't pass those costs on, their cost, they're passing plenty of other costs on. But what we're forgetting is, look right now in New York, when you t hear about everyone talking about the smoke, the smoke, the smoke, is anyone talking about the people in Canada who've lost their homes and what those fires have done? So it's really interesting what we focus on rather than the really, the point of the real loss. Mm -hmm. Okay. You're right, Patty. All right, this week, uh, an estimated 5,000 women gathered on the grounds of the state capitol over the course of three days with the hope of convincing Governor Polis to sign an executive order to ban guns. Jesse, he told them on day one that wasn't going to happen. Right, and I, and I think partially that may not have been the point. It was a lot to get media attention. I think they succeeded in that, at least on the first day, things kind of fizzled out. I will say that the organizers expected 25,000 people to show up, and on the first day, I think the maximum was about 800. So I think there was some disappointment in terms of who actually uh, came to the event. As, as someone who covers you know, gun regulations, gun control, gun bills at the Capitol very frequently, it's something I've focused on throughout my career, I, I think that there was a lot of frustration from the groups that are working on those policies toward uh, the organizers of this event, because they feel like this is going to hurt the messaging that that they have, which is common sense, you know, gun control or, or gun regulations, ways to keep the worst uh, weapons out of the people people's hands or people who shouldn't have them. And Democrats are always constantly trying to fight back against the notion that they're trying to take people's guns. And now you have a group that, that went out and said, we are trying to take your guns. And so I think uh, that, that could make things more difficult for people who are trying to work on these issues. It'll be interesting to see how Republicans at the Capitol respond next year when inevitably we see more gun regulations brought. And also I think it was fascinating that the governor really kept arm distance, arms distance from, from this protest. He wasn't even at the Capitol all week. They held all their bill signings at the, at the mansion, which I think was kind of an acknowledgement that he doesn't want to have anything to do with this and, and wanted to not be tied to it at all. Do you think that was planned? Oh, 100%. 100%. Okay, Summer. Mm -hmm. I think um, it's an interesting dynamic uh, that that Gavin Newsom acknowledged um, the the rallies and the, the issue, and then kind of signed in or, or, or mentioned going hard in the paint in California on legislation that Polis already signed into law. So like you have um, you have. Uh, increasing the gun ownership age from 18 to 21. He already signed that bill. We have um, a waiting period of three days. I mean, granted, those those two issues are getting pushed back already from uh, gun con or gun gun advocates. Um, 
but like you already have the three-day waiting period, you have a stronger uh, red flag law here in Colorado. And it's kind of like, yeah, I'm glad that you feel seen by Newsom. You came to Colorado to protest, and we had already done those things that you feel seen by Newsom for having done, which I guess is fine. You know, you got, you got the press coverage that you needed, you know. Um, I do think that when we talk about gun regulations and gun control, what we're missing is the minority aspect. We're missing, like, the National African American Gun Owners Association encouraging folks to arm themselves because people like Jordell uh, Richardson just got shot by local police, right? And so, like, um, in Aurora, and there's going to be a rally for that. So. What we're what we're also missing is is that is that folks are just as cautious of civilians as they are of um, those we deem our protectors, right? Mm -hmm. And and that's kind of going to come to a head eventually. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Governor Newsom, but then on Thursday he said, "I want to raise money to make the twenty eighth amendment of the U.S. Constitution and ban guns." So mm -hmm. I think this group does feel heard. Uh. That well, here. this yeah. group got exactly what it wanted, yeah. which was attention, national attention. They knew all you had to do was look at Colorado's progress on guns. There was no way that Polis was going to be able to issue an executive order the way they wanted, but they wanted attention. And minor minorities were definitely heard because this is an organization here for the kids run by minority women who intentionally wanted to use the power of white women because they thought it would bring more people to the Capitol. It also got more attention nationally in the press. You had Hollywood people coming. You had CNN doing a report at five minutes to six Denver time on the first day of the rally, the sit-in, to say this is happening here. So they got the attention they wanted. I don't think they ever expected Polis to issue anything beyond what he did, which was, this is why we can't do it. It's illegal. But they got the attention, and it's going to continue. Mm -hmm. There will be other rallies in other states, probably. I'll pick up on a lot of what's been said. This was about theatrics. And in the case of the rally organizers, I think it was sort of bad theatrics. Start, the starting piece of theatrics is the notion that there were 5,000 people there, as Jesse mentioned. On a high point on day one, maybe there were 800 or 1,000. 5,000 is a figment of the organizer's imagination. The notion that uh, Jared Polis had any ability to do what they wanted to do was a part of the theatrics, and it was false theatrics. And as to Gavin Newsom, there's also theatrics to what Gavin Newsom just did. It is easy when you're the governor of very left-leaning, very blue California to stand up and, and say we need a constitutional amendment. Last I looked, a constitutional amendment required majorities in the House and the Senate and passage or ratification by three-quarters of the state legislatures in the country. That is 38 out of 50 state legislatures. It is a fanciful theatrical notion that that is ever in the cards. This is going to be an incremental thing. I'm totally on board on all these incremental steps. But Colorado already took a bunch of those incremental steps. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Governor Polis had actually signed five gun bills into law, most recently and lastly with the bill banning ghost guns across the state. He had until Wednesday of this week to sign or veto or do nothing with the bills that were passed during the 2023 color legislative session. Patty, your thoughts on how this all ended off this week? Well, the vetoes were really interesting at the end of the week. So we had the veto on the affordability bill that had passed regarding municipalities getting right of first refusal on apartment buildings that were being sold. But I was also fascinated that he vetoed the, ticket, the consumer ticketing one, where people are trying to end the scalping using bots 
and Polis found some problems with it, some flaws. Let's hope they all go back to the drawing board because the fact that bots are now buying so many of the tickets for concerts, it's really an injustice to music fans, and not just music fans, sports fans, of which there are many more in Denver these days. <laughs> yep, you're right. Eric, your thoughts on what passed and did it this week? This is a governor, a Democratic governor of a very Democratic legislature who over the last few weeks has found his veto pen. I don't have an exact number of bills he's vetoed, but I think it's approaching double digits. If it didn't hit double digits, we can argue about and discuss the merits of each individual veto, but it is easy for Democratic governors to veto Republican bills or vice versa. This is a Democratic governor holding Democratic legislators for the overwhelming part accountable if they go too far or if they haven't dotted I's and crossed T's or if they just have a silly idea and good for him. I have the number for you. It was 10 vetoes, which is the most that the governor's ever done in his, in his five years in office. So it was significant. It's, it's more than Hickenlooper ever did in a single year either. So it, it was notable how many bills um, he, he, he rejected. And, and I actually spoke with the governor about this. And I said, you know, was this some uh, recognition that, that you didn't get along with the lawmakers this year? What happened? Was there a lack of communication? And he said, you know, kind of his normal diplomatic way, no, we look at every bill. And, but behind the scenes, really, I mean, I think it's reflective of the fact that there was more tension between the first floor of the Capitol and the second, which is where the legislature is. And I think it, it was kind of reflective of, we, we previewed this in the Colorado Sun. We said, look, Lawmakers are going to test the governor's veto pen like, pen like they never have before this year. We saw more vetoes than he's ever signed. And I think maybe next year you'll see maybe more co cooperation between the two. Or you could see more vetoes if they decide, you know, hey, let's just, let's just make him make these tough decisions. But you don't have to worry about that just yet. You have a break now from the legislature. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> okay, not till January. Now let's go around the table and talk about some of the good and the bad of this week. Let's start with the positive patty. Positive? No, let's start with the negative. All right. right. We want to end on a positive note. Thank you for keeping me straight. Well, that's all right. I actually want to talk about loss and Kelly Bruff's loss. Mm -hmm. And it will be a loss to Denver if she is not continuing to be out there. She's an interesting woman, good public servant, didn't agree with some of the things she did at the Chamber of Commerce, but her work in the City Hall and especially working with neighborhood groups as a mediator was extraordinary. And we, we don't want to lose her. She cares. Yeah, she definitely cares. Ditto, Patty. I'd also say, at, at a, now in the aftermath of this uh, long mayoral uh, election, the Fair Elections Fund, public financing of campaigns, didn't exactly fare all that well uh, in the final analysis. We ended up with the two best-funded candidates who certainly did not require any taxpayer support. I think Mike Johnston's independent expenditure groups were quite uh, adequate to the cause on his behalf. And this whole notion of campaign finance reform, it's a very complicated notion, but the more we try to clamp down on what people can contribute directly to campaigns, the more importance we put on these quote-unquote independent expenditure groups, which just raise boatloads of money from extremely wealthy donors, and it goes around behind the back door instead of in through the front door, it is all bogus. Turnout was super low. I was I was disappointed in, in Denverites. Only 31% of active registered voters cast ballots in this uh, election. That's actually lower than the 33% who cast ballots in April, and much lower than 35% who cast ballots in the uh, 2019 runoff. So I expected voters to, sh to show up for the runoff in a uh, first open election in 12 years. Didn't happen. What's going on, people? Okay, Summer? Yeah, I'm going to e echo Eric. I think that the Fair Election Fund did 
not fare well, um, unfortunately, and it didn't really create the, the dynamic of equity that we were hoping to see. I also don't think that it was stewarded very well. I don't think that uh, we were in a place where we could shepherd the donations in a way um, that guaranteed voters like the outcomes that they wanted for their funds, you know, and this is a large fund for voters, so it's important that we have some accountability. All right, let's get some positive. We've seen many great people sit at this table and talk about things and then move on to other areas. Denise Mace, wonderful commentator here, and now she's going to the Denver uh, General Services Administration federally, so a great appointment, but we'll miss her. We will miss her. Good job. Well said. Uh, this is a month or more old, but I, I think we neglected it. There's a Littleton police officer by the name of Jeff Barmer who was involved in a heroic and horrendous rescue of his partner, and he received from President Biden the Medal of Valor, which is the highest honor that the country offers to public safety officers for heroism uh, and bravery in service. So congratulations to Officer Farmer. For all the victims of the of the Marshall Fire, they waited 17 months for an answer on what exactly caused all of their pain and anguish. So even though the outcome of the investigation, no criminal charges might not be what they were hoping for, I think to have some kind of closure to know what caused this thing, I think will, will help some people sleep at night, I hope. Let's hope. Let's hope. I'm just going to share something personal. Like, I am 92 days away from my wedding, and I'll be so glad when we are done wedding planning. I hope people eat and drink and be merry and leave me alone. An oh, RSVP. An RSVP. You know? <laughs> RSVP. Okay. Congratulations to Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to end on something positive as well by recognizing the civility, resiliency, and humility that we've all witnessed this week, be it in the way Denver's mayoral candidates treated one another during the campaigns and after it was all over, to the empathy and genuine sensitivity showed by the Boulder County Sheriff Curtis Johnson, who teared up recounting all the loss in his community and his own personal loss during the press conference uh, on Thursday. To the women who came together outside the state capitol out of concern and love for their communities. And then I got to say it, we got to say Denver Nuggets, we got to do a shout out to the selfless play and teamwork, right? Um, Colorado, we can do good when we stick together and work together. Thank you all for coming together and working this week here on Colorado Inside Out. And thanks to you for watching at home as well or on your device. You can catch Colorado Inside Out anytime on YouTube or PBS12.org or Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I'm Kyle Dyer. I'll see you next week here on PBS 12.